Grace and peace, brothers and sisters. My name is Vicar Derek Kabilis, and I've got a sermon for you today. Today's sermon was preached on October 27th, 2019. And the gospel passage that goes along with it is Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, which I will read for you now. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thusly, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Enjoy. I wish to preach to you this morning from the title, You Ain't No Baby Face. You Ain't No Baby Face. Please pray with me. And now, most holy and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, you are our rock. And our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> this sermon starts where I think all good sermons start. Professional wrestling. <laughs> Any professional wrestling fans here today? One? Just one? Sherry, you mean you don't like professional wrestling? Oh... See, when I was a kid, eight or nine years old, my dad took me down to the Richfield Coliseum to see Dusty Rhodes take on Rowdy Roddy Piper in a grudge match. As a child, I loved this stuff. And in some sense, even back then, I knew it wasn't all on the up and up, you know? <laughs> I knew that it was, uh, there was a little fakery going on somewhere. I think everybody did. I mean, how could men beating on each other with folding chairs and baseball bats be legal? But it didn't bother me because if you called wrestling fake, then you would have to call comic books fake. You'd have to call Star Wars fake. What I, what I like to think about, I think, 
was that it was this 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 grand morality tale you know it was all about good versus evil light versus dark and the line between them was so clear and i had so much fun just getting wrapped up in that conflict between right and wrong see the way wrestling works is that when you're in the crowd you're supposed to get wrapped up in what we call the dualism of it. That you have two kinds of characters. There are the heels and the baby faces. The baby faces are the heroes. And their job is to be the valiant, courageous defenders of all that is good and pure in the world. These are your, your Hulk Hogan types your ultimate warriors, and, and, and all they have to do, their job is easy, all they got to do is pretend to beat up the bad guy, and then just simply accept all the love and adoration of the crowd. But the heels, the heels have the hard job. They don't just have to be evil. They have to make the crowd hate them. They call the, the hatred of the crowd heat. And the more heat you can get, the better if you're a heel. The more they can whip the crowd into a frenzy, the more they can get the crowd to buy into this dualism, the more tickets they'll sell. The all-time greatest heel performance in the history of wrestling was delivered on May 24th, 1976, in Greenville, South Carolina, by a man named Ole Anderson. By the end of the match, the crowd erupted in a fury of hatred against Ole. And he was yelling at the audience, and, and they were yelling at him, and he was loving every minute of it. And before long, they were swearing at him and throwing stuff at him. It was all perfect, so much heat, exactly what you want when you're a heel. But then, as he moved toward the exit, a man came out of the crowd and pulled out what's called a hawkbill knife. Y'all know what a hawkbill knife is? It's a knife that has a, a curl on the end, almost like a, like a sickle, and used it to slash Ole's chest and all the way down his arm. Ole still thought it was awesome because <laughs> it was the most amount of heat anybody had ever gotten, but he had to be rushed to the hospital. It took hundreds of stitches and a four-hour operation to repair all of the tendons in Ole's arm. Only later was it reported that his attacker was 82 years old. The problem was the old man forgot it was a show. The man lost himself in the dualism between good and evil and, and said, well, if, if, if Ole Anderson was that bad, then I was doing everybody a favor. 
See, that's what happens when we paint the world with black and white. When we begin to think that they are the bad ones and we are the good ones, then all of a sudden, screaming makes sense. And all of a sudden, swearing and throwing things starts to make sense. All of a sudden, taking out a knife or bomb starts to make sense. Thank you, God, says the Pharisee, that I am not like other people, like thieves or adulterers or even this tax collector. What you have to understand is that tax collectors were the ultimate heels of the Jewish world. They were the Jews that were hired by the Roman Empire to collect taxes for the Romans. They were in league with the oppressors. And the way they were paid was that, that Rome would, would give them a quota, a certain amount of money that they had to collect, but anything they could collect over and above that amount, they got to keep. So these tax collectors extorted their own friends and fellow Jews and lined their pockets with the bread money of their neighbors. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they got a bad rap in the church. The Pharisees were the baby faces of the ancient Jewish world. They were the holy men. The, the, the learned men, the, the ones who, who kept the law scrupulously and taught others to do the same. And more than that, they were the ones that were leading the underground resistance against the Romans. You see, the Pharisees had every reason in the world to think that they were the heroes. Their whole society lifted them up as, as examples of more moral virtue, paragons of righteousness. Jewish religion and patriotism put them on their pedestals, and they all loved that they had the Pharisees to look up to. They loved that they had their own hero, that they had their own Hulk Hogan, their own Captain America, their own... Barack Obama, their own Donald Trump. Wait, let me guess. About half of you are thinking, how dare you compare Barack Obama to Donald Trump? And about the other half are thinking, how dare you compare Donald Trump to Barack Obama? See that? Heels and baby faces aren't just for the inside of the ring. In Bible study in Sunday school, whenever you go over this story, I, I, I often hear folks scoff at the blatant self-righteousness of the Pharisee. How could he be so arrogant? 
How could he just judge and compare himself to another person like that and, and just openly declare his moral superior, superiority? To which I say, well, thank God that you're not like him. To which they say, yeah, wait. The point of the story is not so much to identify with the tax collector over the Pharisee. It's more to realize that we are all tax collectors and we are all Pharisees. We all exist on a continuum, on a spectrum of goodness and morality that ranges from the blackest black to the brightest light, we are all capable of such incredible good and, and, and such terrible evil. And on any one day, we know we might fall anywhere in between that spectrum. The point of the story is to help us realize that we are on a journey. And that the only surefire way to get lost is to think that we've already reached our destination. Did you ever notice that we judge other people by what's on the outside? How they act, what they say, what they do. But we judge ourselves based on what's on the inside, by our intentions, by our heart. We might look at someone who smokes and say, Wow, I can't believe you would do something like that to your body. But what we may not realize is that they used to be addicted to heroin and that they've come so far already. I think it's that journey, that willingness to grow and move toward righteousness by which we are truly judged, not just how outwardly righteous we come to seem. C.S. Lewis talks about how one day, when we've all crossed over to the other side, right, when we've all shuffled off the mortal coil, we'll find out just how many of our sins were caused by physical or psychological problems or our upbringing or, or any number of things that were completely out of our control. He says... We think we're good because we're righteous. But after we die, we'll find out that it might just have been because we had really good digestion. And that guy we thought was evil was just lactose intolerant. Or had some psychological issue. Or who had parents with some kind of psychological issue. Do you get what he's saying here? That there is an entire web of life surrounding each and every single person that is beyond their control of their body, their, their mind, their, their surroundings, their, their family, their friends, their society that speaks to how they became what they became. But we judge one another on what we can see here and now. But God judges based on what we do with the raw material of life we've been given. Now, I, I, I don't usually like to talk about the news up here. 
But a few weeks ago, there was this outcry because Ellen DeGeneres, y'all know Ellen, uh, a, a woman who broke ground by being one of the first openly gay comedians on television, was caught sitting and laughing beside George W. Bush in a football game. A man whose entire electoral strategy in 2004 was based on passing a constitutional amendment against gay marriage. Conservatives called Bush a traitor to the cause of traditional marriage. And liberals tweeted Ellen reminders that Bush dehumanized gay people and they chided her for her irresponsible friendship. Irresponsible friendship. Such an outcry from both sides only shows that we live in a society where we have lost faith in friendship and love to change hearts and minds. There's this really small detail in the story that we read today. The whole scene takes place in the temple, right? Between the Pharisee and the tax collector. They're both praying in the temple. Now, the temple was basically the busiest place ever. This bustling hive of activity. Imagine the mall on Christmas Eve, except every day of the year. Yet somehow it says the Pharisee was off praying by himself. You see, that's what dualism does. It separates. It creates a barrier. An impenetrable line between us and them. The good guys on this side and the bad guys on that side. Between me, the baby face, and you, the heel. And as long as I live according to that dualism, as long as I live according to that ideology, I'll feel safe and secure in the certainty of my own goodness and in the group to which I think I belong. We have a name for groups that work like that. They're called gangs. Because you see, that dualism is a trap. Because at the very moment you start to think that you're the baby face and they are the heel, the very moment you think that you and your kind have it all figured out and they will just never get it, the moment you start thinking, thanking God that you are not like them, that's the moment taking a hawk bill knife to their chest starts to make sense. You might say, yeah, but, but Derek, look at you. Look at where we are. Has there ever been a more exclusive dualistic thing in the whole wide world than the Christian church? And I won't try to apologize for Christianity and its hundreds of denominations. I won't make excuses for what has become one of the most divisive institutions in the whole world. All I'll say is that the church was supposed to be Catholic. 
And y'all know I don't mean pointy hats in Italian statuary, right? I mean, it's supposed to be universal. That on her best day, the church is supposed to be the, the, the thing that embraces everyone, regardless of what they've done, regardless of where they come from, regardless of who they are, even what they believe. As John Chrysostom once said, the church is a hospital and not a courtroom. Rather than a place where people come to be judged by their beliefs and separated for their sins and excluded for their moral failures, the church is supposed to be a clinic for those who know that there's something wrong with them who know that they are not living up to their potential, who know that God created them to be something greater and something more, for those who know that they have a long road to recovery. Some people say that kind of church is just a fantasy. That the universal church, the truly Catholic church, is never going to happen. That it can't happen. That it's just as fake as a wrestling match. But I think the real fakers are all the baby faces and the heels out there. The heroes and the villains. All those that peddle division and exclusion for the sake of profit. Insecurity. In one glorious day, all these masks, all these bodies and brains, and all this raw material will fall away. And we'll see that this whole time, we've all been on the same journey. And all of us will look to heaven and pray with the tax collector, have mercy upon me, a sinner. These words I offer to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.